New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist news editor. Joining us today are New Scientist journalists Graham Lawton and Sam Wong. Hi both. Hi. Hi there. Coming up, Sam is going to tell us about the science of baking bread and why you don't need to buy any yeast to get it done. Graham is going to explain why a type of parakeet is spreading across the world And we're going to hear about some of the more surprising things that bacteria are responsible for, including maybe, maybe the weather. But first, we're going to New York and the impact of coronavirus there. It's the first place in the US where the virus has really taken hold. It's like to the rest of the US, like Italy was to Europe. New York State has a population of nearly 20 million and now has more confirmed cases of coronavirus than all of Italy, which has a total population of 60 million. As of April the 9th, There are more than 140,000 confirmed cases and tragically more than 4,500 deaths in New York. Tom Frieden is former director of the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's the main public health institute in the United States. He's former commissioner of the New York City Health Department and he runs Resolve to Save Lives, which is an initiative aimed, amongst other things, to prevent epidemics. I spoke to him on the line from New York earlier. Dr. Frieden, thanks for joining us. You're in New York. It's at the epicentre of the pandemic in the United States. Can you describe the situation there for you right now? It's heartbreaking. Uh, The streets are empty, but we hear sirens going day and night. I was born in this city. I did my medical training here. I was health commissioner for eight years. I worked at the health department for two decades. And it is unprecedented, horrifying and tragic. And is the city coping? Because we're seeing some pretty disturbing reports that hospitals and morgues are becoming overwhelmed. On the one hand, you can walk outside. It's a beautiful spring day. People are walking their dogs, albeit with masks on and uh, taking their children in strollers and bicycling around, although many, many, many fewer of them, of them than usual. On the other hand, our healthcare workers are bearing the brunt of this. And this is exactly what we feared and predicted, that because New York City did not implement physical distancing soon enough, there has been an explosion of cases and an explosion of healthcare worker infections. We have to urgently learn how to keep healthcare workers safer. It's not only a question of shortages of supplies, that that's a terrible problem that has to be fixed. It's also figuring out What's the best way to care for large numbers of patients safely? And what are the innovations from all over the world that we can learn from? For example, the glove box for taking nasal swabs from South Korea. These are important innovations, and we as a world need to learn them together. We do, but I mean, New York itself, you know, it's, in, it's at the, almost at the peak of this now. Is there time for you to learn any of this? What, what do you need to do right now? Right now, everyone has something to do. The general public in New York City should stay home, including at this time, people with mild symptoms, because if you're mildly ill, you're going to be using up scarce resources, possibly infecting others, and you're just going to be told to go home again. And if you're not infected and mildly ill, you may get infected while you get tested. So we're actually taking the unusual step of encouraging people just at this time 
not to get tested for mild illness because there are severe shortages. We also need to scale up our ability to safely care for as many patients as possible. And that does mean more ventilators, more oxygen, but it also means changing the way we have patient flow so that we reduce the risk to healthcare workers. That means reducing the number of people who have contact with patients, quickly figuring out whether prior infection is protective. We still don't know that. If it is, then healthcare workers who've had prior infection are very important in this uh, response, but we don't know that for sure. And that's one of the several urgently needed answers that we need. Right. For some of these measures, how many of them do you need federal aid for? The federal government has a crucial role to play, and I am deeply distressed by the lashing out we see at organizations, individuals, institutions, rather than are all working together against a common enemy. The enemy is a virus here, and there will be plenty of time for after-action reports. Now is the time for action. We need a much more coordinated approach to scaling up testing, to scaling up availability of reusable N95 respirators, what are called elastomeric and PAPR respirators to protect healthcare workers, real-time analysis of how healthcare workers are getting infected so we can drive that number down. We need to learn how best to support patients who are desperately ill. And we need to do much more to integrate our response so it's a coordinated response and to look forward to the next phase. The next phase is a massive increase in contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine in addition to massive testing. These are the four things that we have to get done right. Can you see an exit strategy? Can you see a timeline when we might start to see a lifting of the restrictions? I think Focusing on the date is the wrong thing to do. We need to focus not on the date, but on the data. And there are three broad areas that we need to make sure are in place before we loosen the tap. And we do need to loosen the tap gradually rather than opening the floodgates. Those three things are the epidemiologic situation of the virus. Is the virus epidemic peaking, coming down such that we can track all of the cases. Second, our healthcare system. Are we able to provide safe care so that if cases bump back up again, we're not going to have another spate of healthcare worker infections? And third, the public health capacity, especially for testing, isolation, contact tracing, and quarantine of contacts, but also to turn on and off the physical distancing measures in a way that will minimize the economic harm of doing that while maximising the public health benefit. Right. We've started to see some good news, perhaps a glimmer of good news, that social distancing measures are starting to work in New York because there are figures showing that hospitalisation is going down. So that's a, that's a glimmer of good news, right? What we're seeing is exactly what we would predict. Two weeks after large-scale shelter-at-home physical distancing, cases have begun to come down. That's why it's so urgent we think about the next phase. In the next phase, we are going to need a massive increase of testing, contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine. These are the four things that may allow us to gradually emerge from our homes and restart our economy. 
But when we do that, we have to do that carefully. That means that the most medically vulnerable people, the elderly and those with serious underlying conditions, are going to need to shelter in place longer. That means that we're going to have to restart businesses, schools, and daycares carefully, sheltering those who are medically vulnerable and ready to turn back on that physical distancing tap if it looks like the number of cases might overwhelm either our public health or our healthcare system. I wanted to ask you about some of the estimates released by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle. I've just seen it's now predicted 60,000 deaths in the United States. And I, I wonder what you made of that, because it suggests the peak in the US will come rather sooner than we expected. Any number of deaths is too many. The value of a model is to guide action, not to project like a lottery on how many people are going to die. The core here is to guide our actions and to use the best available information to prevent as many deaths as possible. A month ago, we predicted what could happen in a very simple model. The key here is to better understand how we can make that number as low as possible. Can you look forward to a time when we're out of this crisis and, and, and describe perhaps how things will have changed? Until we have a vaccine or potentially a cure, we are living in a COVID world and there are going to be drastic changes, not only hand washing and covering coughs and not shaking hands, but travel is going to change. Quarantine will become the norm. Areas that don't control the virus are going to be sealed off from those that have, and travelers are going to need to either prove immunity or quarantine for 14 days. Even if we do have a vaccine, and when we do, I hope there will be certain things that are silver linings here. One of them, that our healthcare system becomes safer all over the world. Patients die every year because of infections picked up in the hospital and healthcare settings, nosocomial infections, as they're called. In the U.S. alone, that's up to 100,000 people a year. That's one of our leading causes of death. So one thing that could happen out of this is a much safer healthcare system. A second positive result could be a recognition that we are all in this together, that what any of us do anywhere can affect all of us everywhere. And that means that it is in our self-interest to close the life-threatening gaps in detection, prevention, and response that exist all over the world, particularly through Africa and Asia. By working together, we can make this a much safer world. And I think it will be a world that is never the same, not only because of the people we've tragically lost, but because of the recognition of what we have to do together to prevent this from ever happening again. I wonder if you'd like to give a message first to the federal government and second to the citizens of New York. For the federal government, we need an organized response with a clear plan. It's April. We need to do four things. Test widely, contact trace expertly, isolate all who are infected, especially those in hospitals, nursing homes, and congregate facilities, but every single person who's infected. Track the contacts carefully uh, and quarantine those who are isolated. If we do those things, we have a chance of steadily emerging back into our lives. For New Yorkers, I would say, these are dark days, but this is still the greatest city in the world, and we will emerge from this battle-scarred, but stronger than ever. Dr. Frieden, thanks for joining us. Uh, just before I let you go, how are you doing personally? Um, 
Describe how you're coping with being locked down. Uh, I'm working essentially every waking moment. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, my, my chair, which is a very nice office chair that I've had for decades, now has, is falling apart because I've been sitting in it for 16, 18 hours a day. I went for a walk yesterday, first time I'd been out of the apartment for many days, and just realized what a beautiful spring day it was with cherry blossoms blooming, gentle breeze, families and pets playing in the park, and recognized that despite all of this terrible tragedy about which I'm literally crying at this moment, it is a beautiful world and we will be able to go back out. That was Tom Frieden of Resolve to Save Lives from New York City. One thing I took from that is COVID world. Even after months now of talking about coronavirus, it's still unsettling to hear our world described as COVID world. Really unsettling. Um, but I guess what I keep telling myself is it, it will get better over time uh, as countries beef up infrastructure for testing and treatment and communities become less immunologically naive to the infection. This will become less severe. The, the issue is really just getting there and how long that might take. Now it's time for our regular feature on tips for maintaining a healthy mental and physical state during social distancing, isolation or quarantine. This week we've asked new scientist journalist Sam Wong, who writes our science cookery column, to give us some comfort foods. Baking in the time of crisis, if you will. Yeah, lots of people seem to be uh, getting into baking during this time when they're stuck indoors. Um, and lots of people are complaining about not being able to find ingredients in the shops. Uh, uh, one of our reporters, Claire, was telling us that she couldn't find any yeast. Um, and I said to her, you don't, need, uh, you don't need yeast from a packet to make bread. You can use wild yeast, which is how you make sourdough. And quite a lot of people seem to be uh, trying this out for the first time. So do you need to get a starter from somewhere to start making sourdough? No, so it's very easy to start your own starter. These um, wild yeast uh, are everywhere, so all you need to do is mix some flour and water in a jar and wait. And you can use any flour, but um, whole wheat flour is probably the best because the wild yeast spores are most likely to be on the outer parts of the grain that, uh, that are uh, filtered out in the, uh, in the white flour. So um, after a few days, you should start seeing some bubbles in the mixture um, if nothing happens, you can um, throw away half and replace it with more flour and water, and eventually you should start seeing signs of life. Uh, and then once your starter is active, you need to feed it every day. Uh, that means adding fresh flour and water, or uh, you can keep it in the fridge for a, for a while, and that means you won't need to feed it as often. And apart from yeast, are there bacteria playing a role in this too? Yes, there's a group of bacteria that produce lactic acid, um, uh, what we call lactic acid bacteria, and that's what puts the sourness in sourdough. Uh, and the acid keeps out unwanted microbes, um, but the yeast that make the, the sourdough bread, they're quite happy in an acidic environment. So they're, they're kind of working in partnership. So that has always made me wonder, um, because microbes are involved, is there any risk of things going wrong, getting the wrong kinds of microbes and accidentally poisoning yourself? Um, I haven't heard of that happening. I think um, basically the, the, the acid environment is very good at keeping out the, the pathogenic or harmful microbes that you don't want in there. But if you if you start seeing uh, any mold or any strange patches in the in the starter, I, then you should probably uh, throw it away. But in general, it seems to be pretty safe. I mean, after all, people have been baking with with these kinds of cultures for thousands of years. So uh, it's pretty rare, I think, that you get any kind of food poisoning from it. And so when your starter is starting to show signs of life, um, when can you start baking with it? How long does that take? You're supposed to keep the starter going for about a week or so. Uh, so there's plenty of yeast in there and a good stable community of microbes. 
and then once it's been going for about a week then you can you can start baking and um, if you want a recipe there's one that we published uh, a few weeks ago in New Scientist uh, but there's there's loads of uh, more detailed recipes online that you can also find for better explanations of all of the tips. It seems like a lot of people are getting into baking now, um, especially with social distancing measures and lockdowns going on. Um, but I've seen some discussion online that um, sourdough baking is quite wasteful compared to something like an easy soda bread because you throw lots of bits away. Is that true? So when you're feeding your starter, um, you have to add fresh flour and water, but um, typically you would take out about half of what was in the jar to begin with to make space. Um, And you can throw that away, but if you don't want to be wasteful, there's lots of things that you can do with that discard. You can put it straight into a frying pan and make a sort of uh, flatbread or pancake or add sugar to it and make a a crumpet. Um, I saw somebody on Instagram making um, noodles from her sourdough discard so um, you, it doesn't have to be wasteful if you've got the the time and the inclination there's there's uh, uh, plenty of things that you can do to make the most of that starter and it sounds like quite a project is it worth the effort um, I got into it a few months ago and and I, th- I think it's been really really rewarding and satisfying um, to do because my first few loaves were a bit sort of misshapen, but even uh, even those first efforts, I was really impressed by, by how tasty the bread was. You know, even a kind of beginner's effort is, is a thousand times better than bread you would get at the supermarket. And it smells great and it's really satisfying to make something with your hands. So I think it's absolutely worth the effort, I would say, especially if you've got um, more time at home at the moment. And, and it, it might take a, take a while with the, the sort of slow fermentation process involved, but it's very easy to adapt these recipes to fit into your schedule and it's just kind of nice routine to get into so yeah I think it's it's a great lockdown activity thanks so much Sam time out we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor the Financial Times we hope we're keeping you well abreast of all the scientific developments of the coronavirus but the pandemic's hitting every part of our lives and the FT's doing an incredible job of really digging into its impact in the worlds of business finance culture and industry They've recently launched a coronavirus tracked page on their website, which is free to read. Updated every day, it provides a visual snapshot of the developing situation. From mapping new coronavirus outbreaks around the globe to which major cities have turned the corner and are now seeing numbers of new cases decline. Yeah, I've been watching these graphs quite a lot, trying to see when the curves start to flatten and and plateau, and it's, it's kind of grimly fascinating. In a time when accurate data couldn't be more important the ft's visual and data journalism team is raising the bar with their coronavirus tracked page you can find it at ft.com coronavirus latest now graham you've been investigating one of the world's most invasive species yeah that's right parakeets now if you live in england and i mean england because they're not in scotland wales or ireland yet you've almost certainly seen and heard these sort of bright screechy parrots in the trees in a park or even now in built-up areas yeah, I've got them in my garden on the bird feeder. Yeah, so what you've got is almost certainly the ring-necked parakeet. Now, they're native to India. Uh, they've been in Britain for a long time. The first recorded sightings were in Norfolk in 1855. Um, they were probably escaped pets, and they don't seem to have colonised the country at that point. But their numbers have increased quite dramatically in the past few years, and that's not just anecdotal observation. Uh, there's population data that confirms it. Uh, And it's not just in the UK. Um, It turns out that invasive parakeets are an issue all over the world. Um, Ring-necked parakeets, or as they call them in the US, rosy-ringed parakeets, are now amongst the world's most successful invasive species. Uh, They're in 35 countries. 
mostly in Europe, but also now in Western Asia. Israel's got them. The latest edition was in Azerbaijan, where they were seen a few months ago. They're in the lower 48 states in the US and also in Hawaii. Do we know why they're spreading so quickly? We don't know. I mean, there are lots of ideas that might be something to do with climate change. and They're not especially cold adapted. Uh, they do lose toes to frostbite in the winter in the UK. And in the past, they've been dependent on urban heat island effects to get through the winter. So maybe with the warming climate, they're now able to spread further. Uh, they've been found as not far north as Glasgow recently. I did say they weren't in Scotland. There is a small population in, in Glasgow. It may be that they've evolved cold tolerance over time. They've been in the country long enough. Uh, maybe an injection of new genes into the gene pool. Uh, they do have populations in the, in the Himalayas that are cold tolerant. Uh, so, it, And it may just be that their population has reached an inflection point where there are enough of them now to spread wide, far and wide, that kind of well-known exponential curve that we've all been looking at recently. Um, now, the thing about them is that people like them. Uh, I like them. People find them attractive and interesting, um, but they're becoming a pest. When there were just a few thousand of them in this country, they were not much bother, but as their numbers grow, they're becoming more and more troublesome. Yeah, I, I must say I don't like them. I think they're they're too noisy. They they drown out the other bird song. They're so noisy, and and also yeah, they're 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 beautiful, but they're a pest. I feel. Yeah, I mean there are some anecdotal reports of people being unable to sell their houses, for example, because they've got a parakeet <laughs> roost nearby, and they're noisy, and their droppings smell, and they push birds off bird feeders, and they're quite aggressive. But they're actually uh, becoming more troublesome th than that. They they nest in holes in trees and they nest very early in the year so even late January early February they're already nesting in holes and they're out competing other hole nesting native species like woodpeckers and nut hatches and in Spain in southern Spain they're competing with uh, Europe's largest native bat the noctule there have even been some reports of noctules being pecked to death by parakeets um, they're a potential agricultural pest too because they eat naturally eat fruits and nuts and that's a really big problem in california and in hawaii uh, they also carry livestock diseases and that at the moment doesn't seem to be a source of transmission for livestock diseases but that might become a problem down the line i know when they first started visiting my parents garden i was i was quite excited to see bright green parrots in the uk but but now they seem to kind of hog the bird feeders and scare off the other birds are we stuck with them is, is this just the way it's going to be I think we are stuck with them. When I, the experts I've spoken to say basically the parrot is now out of the bag. I mean, they have been eradicated in the Seychelles, but it took eight years to shoot a few hundred birds on a pretty small island. Um, and that just isn't going to be possible in, in England anymore. There is a possibility of rolling out some contraceptive laced bait. But they're very long-lived. They live for 30 years, so that isn't going to work for at least a, a decade or so. Um, I think we're just going to have to find a way of living with them they're going to become a bit like uh, the sort of grey squirrels and rhododendrons and and mink and many of those other invasive species that have almost become part of the scene in this country yeah so we can't kill them off but uh, sadly we do have to kill off uh, my favorite myth about them the the Jimi hendrix one yeah there are lots of colorful stories about how they first arrived in the country uh, one of them is that they escaped from a movie set in West London in the 1950s but probably the best one is the Jimi hendrix story which is that jimmy who lived um in Mayfair for a while in the late 60s had a pair that he released on Carnaby Street as some kind of peace symbol. Uh, sadly, that almost certainly isn't true. We know they were established in this country long before Jimmy came. Uh, it may be that he did release a couple of parakeets, but they're not the source of the population. 
Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate any kind of organism that we're feeling the love for. Penny, this week you've got an amazing animal. I've been lucky enough to dive with this one a few times. Really? I'm, I'm very jealous. This week it's whale sharks, which is the world's biggest fish, and I would just love to see one in the world personally. Um, I wanted to celebrate them now, though, because for a while, how long they live has been something of a mystery. But we now know that they can live for at least 50 years and probably far longer. Yeah. So why didn't we know how long they could live? Because we we know quite a lot about them, don't we? Yeah, it, it turns out it's actually quite difficult to work out the age of sharks in general because they don't have any bones. They're a type of cartilaginous fish. So we can't use the methods we would use for other kinds of fish or many other kinds of fish. You can try to count the rings of cartilage in a shark's vertebrae, um, but these can be very variable and in some cases may stop forming altogether after a shark reaches sexual maturity. But you can get a better idea of the age of these rings by looking for signs of carbon-14, um, which is the radioactive isotope released by nuclear bomb tests uh, since the 50s onwards. So now a team has used this technique on two dead whale sharks and found that one of them was at least 50 years old. What, so the rings are like rings in a tree? You, you I, literally count the rings? Not, not quite, I, I don't think. They're, they're more variable. You can't trust them as much as you can trust tree rings. They, they might not always be laid down every year, especially once a shark's mature. So that, that's been part of the problem. But right. by using the uh, radioactive signal as well, you can start actually pinning some time points into those rings and it becomes a slightly more useful technique. Okay, so uh, at least 50 years old. Is that old for a fish? Um, well, it's older than a parakeet by the sound of it. it. It's pretty old for most kinds of animals, really. But it's possible that they do actually live longer than that by some way. Um, we'd need to look at more whale shark specimens to find out. We've only just looked at two so far. Um, but this isn't actually a record holder yet. So similar techniques have previously suggested that great white sharks can be as old as 73 and astoundingly, these techniques have also suggested that Greenland sharks may be the world's longest living vertebrates, living for as long as 500 years. That is amazing. Is Can that possibly be true? So, so maybe. <laughs> That's an upper estimate. The lower end of the estimate of, of that study was uh, 250 years old or thereabouts. Um, still, that's still yeah. really old. Yeah, exactly. And it's possible um, within that that females don't even reach breeding age until they're about 150, which is something to kind of wrap your head around. So all of that is amazing in itself, uh, but it's also really useful for conservationists. Many sharks worldwide are threatened and to help populations recover, we need to understand how long they live and, and also how long it takes for them to breed. Um, Graham, I have to ask you this. You're our longevity guru. Is there anything we can learn from sharks for our own lifespan enhancement? Yes, longevity researchers are interested in the Greenland sharks' biology. I don't know if they've found anything useful. It's not much of a lifestyle guru for humans because it lives in sort of very cold, very dark conditions and doesn't do very much. I guess you might live quite a long time if you did that. Um, in, but in general, um, longevity researchers are interested in long-lived species, uh, one of which is a small, bald, underground-dwelling rodent that I know <laughs> you, Rowan, have a great affection for. I know what you're going to say, Yeah. <laughs> Naked mole rat. Naked mole rat. Hey. Rowan, you've got your hands dirty for this next story. Yeah, this is a story about soil and bacteria. So the reason I'm attracted to this story is it reminds us how extraordinary bacteria are. Um, they're really easy to disregard or, and obviously sometimes we actively try and get rid of them if they're growing on our food or something. Uh, and we tend to forget them or, or not pay them enough respect. 
but they're behind so many things that we take for granted. And the example this week is about the characteristic earthy smell of soil and earth. So you probably never thought about it before. So if I ask you guys now about the earthy smell of soil, you'd probably just say, well, that's just the smell, right? I think I definitely would have just guessed that it was the smell of things sort of rotting, you know, old leaves, or right. you know, rather than thinking it was bacteria. Yeah. So it turns out that that, that earthy smell is made by bacteria living in the soil, a bacteria called Streptomyces. Um, and what a good evolutionary biologist wants to know is why something does something. So if bacteria make the soil smell in a certain way, what's the reason for that? So some Swedish scientists set up field traps containing colonies of Streptomyces, and their reasoning was that the smell might be a lure or a signal of some kind, perhaps a signal of toxicity because Streptomyces can be toxic. But what they found is that some small invertebrates called springtails were attracted to the traps. Spiders and insects were not attracted. So the scientists think that the springtails were attracted to help the bacteria disperse their spores. So when the springtails approach and eat the bacteria, the spores either stick to their bodies or are contained in their faecal pellets and are dispersed through the soil. So the bacteria seem to have evolved a way to enlist the work of the springtails to help them disperse. And if they didn't do this, they wouldn't have a way to disperse. It's so interesting. What mm. do the springtails get out of it? They've evolved immunity to the toxins. So perhaps they get a safe place to feed um, because they're in an area where insects and spiders can't go. Or perhaps they have a nice mushy food that's been worked on by the bacteria. So I'm also a big fan of uh, bacteria. And one of my favourite recent stories was the discovery of these bacteria deep underground in a gold mine. And they're completely cut off from the sun, but they use uranium as an energy source. Yeah, uh, amazing. Um, another one I love is the finding that there are ecosystems of bacteria living in clouds. Uh, and I think that's incredible to think that if you, if you look up at a cloud, you're effectively looking at an atmospheric lake and it's filled with life forms. Uh, bacteria have been found even in the mesosphere, which is the layer above the stratosphere, 70 kilometres above us. Um, and there's a suggestion that the bacteria make clouds in order to get around and rain themselves to the ground. Some bacteria found in clouds have proteins on them that act as nucleating seeds to seed rainfall and cloud formation. So it's not a completely mad idea. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about all these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you would like to subscribe, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yep, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Coming soon over there, we've got a really deep interview with physicist Brian Green. He talks about the transient nature of life. So if you need to pick me up, give it a listen. Do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com and let us know what you'd like to hear more of during this time of social distancing and lockdown. New episodes go live each Friday and do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.